Welcome to Episode 8 of Recovering. Our guest is 2021 Voyager Media Awards Reporter of the Year, Ali Moore. Ali is a senior journalist at Stuff, where she is editor of the hashtag MeTooNZ project. Ali chose to speak with Reverend Frank Ritchie today about her years of investigating sexual harassment in New Zealand workplaces, the sense of responsibility she carries and the personal toll the work has taken on her. I'm Petra Bagus from Media Chaplaincy New Zealand. Throughout this series, broadcaster and media chaplain Reverend Frank Ritchie is joined by leading New Zealand journalists to unpack the one story of their career which has impacted them the most, personally and professionally. Here's Frank sitting down with Ali Moore. Ali, it's a pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you for driving from Muruwai on a clear sunny day where I'm sure out there it was stunning to have to drive into a little inner city industrial studio. It's a real honour. No problem, Meho. It's nice to be here. You've obviously been on the New Zealand media scene for a long time now. And what a lot of people know you best as is as a TV presenter, having done a lot of television. But that's not where you started. You started in print in Australia and then over to television in the UK. Uh, Correct. Why media? Oh, predestined. My father was a journalist and my grandfather was a journalist. Uh, my granddad was the um, editor of a newspaper in Albury, Wodonga, which is up on the border of Victoria and New South Wales. And I'm the only one of three girls that showed any interest in going into media, but uh, I knew at the age of 12 that that's what I was going to do. And you know, met some obstacles quite early on. For example, my favourite English teacher at the Baptist Girls Grammar School that I attended told me at 16 not to bother trying to be a journalist and to be a nurse or a teacher like the other girls. No, absolutely no offence to nurses and teachers who do wonderful work, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And that was formative because it made me even more bloody-mindedly determined to actually do what I wanted to do. Was it because the English teacher thought you didn't have the skill or was there... Was there somehow some sort of this isn't what women do? Well, I don't know. That's I, The former is how I took it at the time. Mm. You know, I wouldn't bother if I were you, love. You know, you implicit being you don't have what it takes. And that kind of birthed in me a need to prove it wrong. And several years later, after I'd been working at the Melbourne Herald for a couple of years as a print journalist, Strathcona Baptist Girls Grammar School invited me back to talk in an assembly. And I walked into the staff room for morning tea and and they had my clippings up on the wall. And I remember thinking, you... Hypocrites. (laughs) Owning your success. Yes, indeed. (laughs) So the UK, why the jump from Australia to the UK? Uh, I had been working. One of the problems with knowing what you want to do early on in life is that as a child, I'd only thought to a certain point, I'd only planned to a certain point. So I want to be a journalist and I fought very hard to, you know, the age of, let's say, 23 to establish myself as a print journalist in Melbourne. And then I was kind of like, oh, well, I hadn't really thought further than here I've actually now achieved my life's dream. (laughs) What now? And so I worked for the Victorian government for a brief period 
just about a year or so, but at a very interesting time, I was a media liaison for the health department and it was right at the height of the AIDS crisis. Mm. And that was, and I worked very closely with the government's AIDS unit and that was absolutely fascinating. And then I went on my OE, you know, literally I was at a party and a dude I know who I still know, um, a camera operator from Channel 9 was visiting from London and said, oh, we've got a space in our flat coming up in Hampstead in April. Do you want to come? And I said, yeah, I want to come. And I'd sp- I went over there. I'd spent my all my money within three months and down the pub on a Friday night at the the crown and scepter, which we called the hat and stick, of course. I was moaning to my friends, you know, I'm going to have to get a job and I don't want to pull pints, nothing against people who do, but somebody pointed out a guy that was standing at the bar who needed a fill-in for a few weeks. And so I went up and just grifted a job and it happened to be writing and producing television, actually. Mm. He gave me a week's trial, which I agreed to do for free, and then just busied myself, making myself indispensable. And about eight weeks later, it was a little boutique production firm and they got a new contract for the BBC for BBC World and he asked me to audition for it and I said I'm not really a front of camera person to be honest with you I'd rather write and he said no 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 you know buy yourself a nice jacket and just do this for me and so I did and I was live on television for the beginning of the Gulf War like a week later doing eight minutes live at the beginning of one of the major news bulletins in Taiwan, actually. Wow. So I'm very famous in Taiwan, or was, for a period. Can you remember the end of that eight-minute bulletin? Did you come off feeling the rush of it? or? Yeah, I always felt quite comfortable mm. in the, you know, in the presenting chair. The problem with Television presenting is nobody ever teaches you how to do it, which is why I have a little boutique side hustle teaching people how to do it because media organisations since the beginning of time have just assumed that you take on the knowledge of how to be a television presenter via osmosis or something. Mm. So you get no training. And you're, you either sink or swim, and I could feel by the end of the first few days that I was going to swim. And... You know, I think as a journalist, you have, it's sometimes innate, I guess, you have an ability to be put in a pressured situation and still produce the result that you need to produce. And maybe you fall apart later, but you perform to the highest standards in that pressure situation. I mean, I think of all those um, journalists who worked the Christchurch earthquakes and must have been just in bits afterwards, but did weeks and weeks and weeks of fantastic reporting on the trot. So, yeah, I guess we were at war. I don't know whether a lot of people these days know much about the first Gulf War, but it was a time of great technological advancement. Bombs were falling and attacks were being made in ways we hadn't seen before. As a, I mean, it's terrible, of course, war is terrible, but as a reporter, it was 
also fascinating mm. in a way. Their sense of fascination around war. I'm sure growing up in a journalist family, you would have carried a whole set of values about what journalism is uh, before you actually got into the role. How did you find mm. that? What, what carried over? What might have morphed and changed as you started dealing with stories and getting to the height of that sort of thing yourself? Yes, I did. And I don't think they were very healthy, mm. to be honest with you. So... You know, my father, for example, was in journalism in the 50s and I started in in journalism for the same newspaper in the 80s. He passed on his very hard, you know, he is he was the ultimate hard-bitten, hard-drinking, always down the pub with his mates, Aussie journalist, and that wasn't great for our family. I spent a lot of time being sent into the public bar to retrieve him for dinner as a little kid. Uh, A lot of time waiting outside pubs in cars and stuff like that. Um, I mean, but the fundamentals were passed on to me, you know, the importance of being impartial and the, the importance of doing your background work to a high level of detail. So, yeah, that was some good and some bad I guess. I could imagine. The whole you visiting the, your father in the pub, that's, a, that's completely news to me uh, and touches me because I had an alcoholic father who took off when I was young, but that, that could have been easily been me. And in dealing with journalists behind the scenes as a chaplain, there's a, there's a huge difference between those who have been at it for years and they have the habit of just doing the story, knocking back the long black coffee and moving on to the next story mm. without processing and then it comes out somewhere else. Mm. Whereas a lot of the younger ones seem to have an understanding that they need to process as they, as they go. You would have had to have discovered that yourself though. Coming from a place where you were taught, you just go at it and then it comes out in alcohol in other ways. So my very first front page story, which is a big moment for a young journalist, uh, was at the Melbourne Herald. I don't know whether you've heard of this tragedy, but uh, it was known as the Hoddle Street Massacre. There was a, um, a man with a rifle picking off motorists in Hoddle Street mm-hmm. in Clifton Hill, which is kind of right near the MCG, actually. And a lot of people died that day. And I was sent to do one of the, what we call the death knocks, so that, mm-hmm. you know, um, visiting the family. And I was very, you know, I was still a cadet. Uh, I would have been 19, 20, I think, and pretty unsure of myself. And I don't know, we managed to get lost. And we were the, the, there'd been a stream of journalists and photographers in and out of this family's house. And we were the last one there. And we got incredibly lucky because the, it was a Greek family and the mother of the young man who'd been killed didn't speak English. So uh, I found out this later. There'd been a lot of journalists coming and going and not getting much of the material that their editors expected them to come back with. Uh, and by the time we got there, myself and the photographer, the the mama had had enough. And so the young man's brother took me into another room and sat down and talked to me about his brother, and he spoke perfect English. And I went back and wrote the story up. And I'll never forget that, that my my chief of staff, who is now a very famous right-wing radio star in Australia, said to me, so what's the story like? And I said, 
because I was incredibly uncomfortable at carrying yeah. this family's pain. And it was, you know, it was something, it's a big thing. If you never had to do it, you, I don't suppose you'd understand, but it's a, bi- it's a big thing. Mm. And most journalists hate doing it. And so I downplayed it and I said, oh, you know, it's quite it's a decent story. And he said, where should I put it in the paper? And I said, page 12. And when I woke up the next morning, it was leading the front page. Mm. And I felt a little pride in that. And my dad, mum and dad were thrilled. And off I went to work and uh, I was called into the chief of staff's office and given a massive dressing down. Don't you ever undersell a story to me again, ever. So no congratulations there. (laughs) Just another warning. So, I mean, I tell this story by way of explaining how things have changed and how brutal by design, really, the bringing up of young journalists was in the 1980s and 90s and before, of course. There were no thoughts as to how you might feel or there was no follow-up. I mean, this is a little bit different, but it shows you how backward the thinking was. There was one very senior woman uh, journalist in the newsroom. She was the state political editor and she, we all witnessed her being called into the open chief of staff's office in the, the bullpen in the middle of the newsroom and told to go home and change because she was wearing pants. <laughs> and this was 1985. <laughs> and I remember, like, I was cowering in the back of the newsroom and we were whispering to each other, what's going on? What? <laughs> This was a a senior, admirable journalist who'd won awards. And the little chief of staff just said, go home and put a skirt on, you know? Wow. So, yeah. I mean, it kind of makes newsrooms today look like paradise. (laughs) (laughs) But it makes a good story to tell. Yeah, oh, man. I'm glad for a lot of the changes then. Melbourne's a great city to live in, good-sized population. Australia has a lot to offer. The UK, you're reporting on war. The UK's a massive population. It's involved in so much around the world. Why New Zealand? Oh, love. (laughs) You know. (laughs) I had spent three years in London, and anybody who's done their OE or lived in London for any length of time, especially if you come from this part of the world, can find it the winter's and the lack of sunlight just kind of grinds you down after a while. Mm. And so it was time to leave for me. And I didn't come to New Zealand. That was not my plan. Uh, I went back to Australia. I got a job at Channel 9. I was made redundant after three months. Um, It was the first – it was my first – brush with sexual harassment in in an office situation like that and I eventually I eventually complained to the general manager and they paid me the rest of the salary that I was owed that the head of news was trying to withhold because I said I'll I'll take you to court if you don't mm. and sexual harassment was a very new concept back then you know that that word was or that phrase was quite new in the media with the Anita Hill hearings the Senate hearings but we all knew what it was and what it looked like and who the main perpetrator was and that was the head of news at Channel 9 at the time so so anyway, I left. I was jobless. Mm. Um, I was out of a job for six months and living in a 
uh, a house with an outside toilet, <laughs> like <laughs> condemned, I think it was, with no way of earning money. And my partner at the time made a trip back to New Zealand to visit friends and family and saw an ad in the paper, because that's how things were done in 1993, for a business presenter, like a television presenter for with a specialisation in business. And that's what I'd been doing in London. So I sent my VHS tape, <laughs> showreel, along with a cover letter by Courier to New Zealand and Communicado, which was run by Neil Roberts, flew us over the next week. And I've never really left. <laughs> well, it's nice that you've stayed. So then we fast forward, because most people are familiar with the television career, and then the years on Radio Live. So you've covered then print, television, radio, back to print. How yeah. has it been slotting back into print after so many years in these other mediums? A joy, an absolute joy. I think it's like coming, when you're a writer... It's like coming home. And, of course, having been out of it so long, I doubted myself enormously. Can I still write? Mm. The Sunday Star Times, the editor of the Sunday Star Times in 2017, asked me to write a column, and it took me a very long time. I think he started asking me in 2015, and it took me a very long time to say yes. But, you know, by the time I started the Me Too thing and came on board at Stuff in a formal capacity, I'd been writing that column for about a year. Mm. And it was really like reuniting with an, an old love. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Me too. Let's, uh, let's start diving into there. And the, sure. obviously that's linked in some way to your early experience. Uh, I'm guessing those two are not unlinked, yeah? Okay. Uh, I guess not. I'm a survivor, like, you know, one in three women are, and I think it's one in five men. So there are a lot of us. And although I would never bring my own experiences into my reporting, I understand. I get it. And when the Harvey Weinstein revelations came out in the New Yorker and the New York Times, and the Me Too movement kind of kicked off again, because of course it existed before that. Yes, I had a, a personal connection to it. I wrote the story of my experience at Channel 9. I wrote about my personal Weinstein. Mm -hmm. And then I interviewed an Australian journalist who I'd worked with at, in the Channel 9 newsroom. She was another young journalist, young female journalist that had a terrible time. And she had launched a reporting project in Australia, basically investigating Me Too in the media industry. Mm. And I had her on my radio show uh, and we had a bit of a chat afterwards because we hadn't spoken to each other in 25 years. And she said, Ali, you really should do this for New Zealand. And I thought about it all over the summer and I thought, you know, my natural thing is, oh, somebody else will lead it and, and I'll be right behind them helping out <laughs> as much as I can. And then kind of nobody did and then in February 2018, we had the Russell McVeigh story came out in newsroom. And I thought, that was it for me. I thought I had I have, have to get this project off the ground somehow. And I had the opportunity to elevate a pitch it to Sinead Boucher. And she literally had, you know, a minute available. And she said yes on the spot. I could imagine. She's an, an extraordinarily bold and visionary person. Yep. 
So she didn't say, how long will that take and how much will it cost? She just said, there was a pause and she went, yes, come here and do that. And then off she went to the airport (laughs) to go back to (laughs) Wellington. So I'm ever grateful to her Mm. because, you know, the support I've been given from stuff has been unwavering ever since. So, Mm. This is a topic that I want to handle with a lot of care, uh, just because the numbers tell us that there will be people listening for whom this has been their uh, experience, my own life, my childhood, there's experience. Uh, So I realise that we're touching now a space for a lot of people that just needs to be handled with with care. And I have no doubt that you've come at it with that as well. But for you, knowing the journalist instinct to get the story, the headlines, the pages, how has that balance been for you between the handle with care because this topic really needs to be dealt with and brought to light versus the story? (laughs) Well, I just refuse to play that old game. Good. And my editors know that and they've been very patient with me because they have to be. (laughs) So if there is a situation where there is a good story but the survivor does not want to tell it, which sometimes often happens, Mm. or they change their mind halfway through the reporting process, I have to go to my editors and say, I'm sorry, this one's not going to come off but you know they they get it when we set up the the project we did two things we drew a line around all of this stuff that previously was not really considered reportable or a story before me too before me too if you had a story of somebody who'd who'd had 10 years of harassment at work and then eventually left because they couldn't just they just couldn't bear to be there anymore and you took it to your editor once upon a time you'd be told Mm, so somebody was shitty to somebody else at work. You know, kind of where's the where's the news value here? So we sat down as a team and we drew a circle around all sexual harassment in the workplace. That's newsworthy. And that was very freeing because we didn't need to go and beg for the time to do those stories. We just did them. Uh, and they still had to stack up. You know, a lot of people have dealt with me and found that I've had to very apologetically tell them that I can't get their story over the line because it doesn't meet the journalistic and legal bar that we need to meet. Um, can, we just, can we just pause here for a second? Sure. Partly because I think there's a perception amongst some people that journalists go out there half-cocked and they write the story because the story's exciting, the information hasn't been checked well enough. And that's not to say that there aren't mistakes, but clearly there are processes in play to to make sure the depth of the story and the information in the story is as good as it can be. Now, there are some types of stories that go out at the moment. They go out very quickly where maybe some of that work hasn't been done. But what sort of things are you checking for to make sure that the story that goes out is solid? Well, yes, there are those people, and often those journalists are under a lot of pressure to get those Mm. stories out quickly, right? You can't do that in my line of work. Mm. These stories take months, and if you you include even the tiniest detail in the story that hasn't been checked and rechecked and rechecked, then you get sued. And I've never been sued. Which says something. So let's just let's I've been just threatened emphasize a few that. times. The fact that you've never been taken to court for any of these stories. And there, we've written, between us, the team has probably over the past four years put out about 50 major investigations and written like 500 stories. So 
Yeah, and that never being taken to court speaks to the integrity of how those stories are are being Mm. processed and how they're coming out. Mm. It's really important. I think it's really important to emphasize that because it's one thing to throw out a threat. It's another thing to believe that it's wrong and therefore take it to court. Mm. I've got very, very adept at reading through lawyers' letters point by point and ticking off in my mind, you know, is that the case? No. Is that the case? No. <laughs> Is that the case? No. I think we're good. But of course, I work very carefully, very, very closely with staff's legal advisors because our organisation has been quite bold about putting these stories out. These stories are dangerous for an organisation in terms of, I hope we all know that we have very, very restrictive defamation laws here in New Zealand and in Australia. It's the opposite in the United States. So, you know, if Harvey Weinstein wanted to sue the New York Times, the onus is on him to prove that what they wrote is not true, whereas the, it's the opposite here. Mm. I have to be able to prove to quite a high standard, uh, a civil court standard of balance of probabilities that what I've written is true. Mm. And that's difficult to do. So... I mean, there's a long answer and a short answer, but when I agreed to try and tell a survivor's story, I'm very upfront early on about what the process is and what bar we have to meet to be able to get the story over the line. And I warn them that the process is extremely rigorous and this is why. And, you know, by the week before publication, neither of us are sleeping pretty much at all because they're terrified and and I'm terrified because I don't want to get anything wrong. Mm. I want to dive further into that shortly. But first, it's a, I think it's extremely brave that you'd go there. It's extremely brave that you'd go there in media because let's be honest, media circles for decades, as you experienced at Channel 9, have not been great in the area mm. of how women have been treated. And There seems to have been an unwritten code for a lot of time where media entities wouldn't report on each other. But here, you've got something where actually the media itself needs to up its game too, which has meant that some stories have been reported on media entities. So it's gutsy. I would probably echo Grace Tame here and say, what have I got to lose? Yes. I've I've been made redundant for almost every media organisation in this country. (laughs) And in some of those cases, I've been treated unfairly and have burnt bridges. I've written publicly about my experiences of pay disparities and and the way I was treated. So, yeah, not a lot to lose here. I'm ever so grateful that in landing at staff, I mean, really, it was the first time in my 30-something year career that I've been treated as a grown-up, mm. you know, which I'm ever so grateful for. And I feel valued, so I don't have I don't have any fear about my position. You know, who knows what will happen? But I think a lot of journalists are afraid. Television, working in television, makes a practice of making you afraid for your job. You know, you are actively told, "Oh well, if you don't want the job, you know, there's a long queue down the corridor of people who will would be happy to take over from you at any second. And that keeps people locked in positions where they're either not being paid fairly or equitably, or they would like to move on and do something else, but they're afraid. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think the the shaking of the tree has been a healthy thing. I think there's a long way to go, as you will well know, but obviously steps are being taken and that tree will just keep being shaken. But it's nice to know that young women coming into the industry now, hopefully, ongoingly, have a better industry to step into. Mm. Um, I think it's probably made me some real enemies, not that they'd say that to my face, <laughs> but I hear things. In the New Zealand media, but I don't care. Because the payoff, if you want to call it that, is so much bigger. So it's made me a great deal of friends among women and men who I've, survivors I've worked with. And that's more important to me, Mm. frankly. Coming back to the start of the whole thing. I would imagine that when when the gate opened to receive stories... I would imagine, I can imagine a flood of people wanting to tell their stories. Was it as you anticipated? That's a really interesting question. And it was funny because we were criticised when we announced the project at launch. I think, the, I can't remember who it was, but somebody wrote a big article in the NBR about how, how do we even know we've got a problem? Why would you do this when we don't even know we've got a problem with sexual harassment in New Zealand? You know, just because the United States does doesn't mean we do, which made me laugh secretly. Because every woman who's ever worked in a workplace knows that there's a problem with sexual harassment. Um, So I didn't really worry that we wouldn't get anybody coming to us with this. But I know others in the team did. But no, I think we had about 500 responses in the first few days. I very clearly remember the first night and sitting down and reading one woman's long, long, long email. And I had to open a bottle of wine kind of a third of the way through it. I'm still in contact with that person to this day, and we've told her story from a couple of angles, actually. Yeah, it was quite brutal. I wasn't surprised, but it was was a lot. How did you emotionally handle that? There's one thing to have an inkling that, well, to know that there's something there, and to imagine those stories, but then to read people's actual stories and them taking the opportunity to spill their guts in a way that they probably haven't had that chance before. Emotionally, what was that like at the beginning? A momentum carried me through and determination to make this an actual thing and, and, and successfully tell these stories. So I didn't really think about myself much kind of early on. Mm-hmm. You'd be surprised how many people wrote their stories down and said, I have no interest in you publishing this, but you're the first person I've told in 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, there were a lot of those. Yeah, so look, it wasn't until a couple of years in that I think it really started to affect me. And I'll be honest and say by the middle of last year, I was struggling a bit. And that is one of the reasons why I've... Um, stepped back for the last few months and I've been working full-time on a documentary, making a documentary. And it's got, the subject matter has nothing to do with any of that. Um, So that's been fun and I needed a bit of fun. But, you know, you've got to weigh, you have to weigh things up. I always think if what you're experiencing is more than 50% negative in any situation, relationship, job, then you really ought to be out of there. And I've never got to that point with my Me Too reporting. It's because it's so rewarding 
to watch people, watch the burden lift from people's shoulders often when you publish their story. They're always terrified in the days and weeks leading up to publication, and I don't blame them. It's a scary thing, and it's a rigorous thing. And you have me ringing you up every, you know, couple of hours saying, so you know how you said that happened on Tuesday the 13th of May? Can I just check, you know, tiny, Mm. tiny little details, but... Often they feel a lightness afterwards and a relief, and then they're able, if they're able to to put that into words and tell me, if they choose to tell me, I feel that too, and it's lovely. Mm. Mm. It's always interesting as a chaplain who's primed to listen, sitting and watching people as they talk about various topics and watching how the, just little nuances about how they how their demeanour lifts and, and, and goes as they discuss things. You lifted there quite a bit. There was a lightness in talking about their burden uh, lifting, mm. which just shows the reward in the work. Yeah, I mean, we copped a lot of criticism early on There were a lot of dudes who, you know, wrote articles about us and some women as well and drew rude cartoons in newspapers and, you know, there were a lot of naysayers. There were a lot of people that said that I couldn't do this and you just have to be dogged about it and know that I never had any doubt that there were hundreds and hundreds of stories to tell and they're still coming in. You know, I've had two this week. Mm. And eventually it was my sincere belief that eventually we would prove that this had been a solid thing to do. And I really think we proved that. You know, I they gave me Journalist of the Year, Reporter of the Year in the Voyager Awards last year for the work, which was wonderful never won an award before, never won anything. It's about ever. time then. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, um, you know, traditionally this kind of story would not have won awards because this kind of story wasn't really told. But far more important than awards are the survivors themselves, but also the fact that we have been able to push the boundaries of what is reportable and regularly reported in this country. You know, if you think back to five or certainly 10 years ago, there were no stories about sexual harassment in the newspapers or on television. There were no investigations into corporations and companies about their toxic gendered cultures. Now these stories are reported all the time. Mm. And it's not just stuff that's reporting them. It's other media as well. And I really think we have been able to, from the inside, push that line out to include a lot of stories that would never have been told once upon a time. Wouldn't that so I'm really proud of that. Yeah. Mm. It's a huge accomplishment to shift uh, to shift a culture uh, yeah. in media. It's that's yeah. massive and you've got what I see is a career that has shaped you towards the determination and the doggedness and the with the burning of the bridges and other places, the place where you could do this where you might not have been able to do it yeah. uh, before. I suppose I got to a place where I didn't give a you-know-what yeah. anymore. And the, the change it affects in workplaces is good and growing. So there's a whole thing that would have been hidden away in the darkness before. Now a light's been shone on it and the darkness will not overcome it. I think it's... Uh, That's a nice way to put it. It's a lovely way to put I'm it. I'm borrowing from the Bible. <laughs> I thought you might be. <laughs> Coming back to, you mentioned before 
couple of years in, you get to the middle of last year and you're feeling it. What does that look like for you? I was in danger of starting to treat survivors with with less compassion, I think. And I stopped myself before I got there, but I would never, you know, I always want to be able to put 100% into these stories and, you know, and make sure that the survivors, whether male or female or young or old, are given the absolute respect that they deserve. And the second that I realised I was kind of I felt as though I was, like my body was full to just about my eyebrows and if it filled up any more, I wouldn't cope. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And having had a few months full time working on a completely different project, a fun project, I feel much better. But also I'm one of those pandemic fleet of the country people. So I sold up in town and moved out to Muriwai in the middle of last year. And so I am surrounded by green and blue and nature everywhere. And I mainly work from home these days. I've also made a personal dream that I've had for 50 years come true in that I have horses I'm one of those horse, annoying horsey <laughs> girls. I have horses on my own land, and I promised myself when I was six years old I would get to that point, and 50 years later <laughs> I managed to do it. So really, I'm like a pig and you know what. And that's, you know, caring for the dog and the horses and being outside, that's really good for one's mental health. Yeah, getting your head out of the work. Mm. I'm fascinated by the fact that one of your danger signals was the possibility of less compassion towards the the people who are telling their stories because an old school journalist might say, but that's how you be objective. Yeah, I don't know. That's... That is, um, you know, the old, crusty old rule, I think. Um, For too many years, journalists have been taking people's stories and putting them on the page and then never thinking about that person or that issue again. I believe with enough experience, you can hold those two parts of yourself separate. So I never drop my journalistic standards because, as, I, as we discussed before, there's too much at stake. Mm. So every investigation I run is run to extremely detailed and exacting standards. That does not mean that I don't feel enormous compassion for the people that I'm working with. And I have group threads, tons of them, for stories that I wrote a year ago or two years ago, and we check in with each other and... You know, none of these people are my best friends, but they are not just a story. I think that's the best way to describe it, isn't it? They're not just a story. They're a person who went through something significant with me, hand in hand. We walked through that process and their face often was on the the front page and they're extremely personal, sometimes embarrassing details of of the pain that they experienced in whatever situation it was have been given to me and I've written them on the page. And, you know, you you don't just walk away from that. Mm. Yeah. With all the stories that you've done with Me Too, Ali, do you see a common thread through all of them as the, I guess, a catalyzer for the situations that develop? Yes, that became 
clear very early on. And it's one of the things that keeps me interested and most interests me uh, about this line of reporting, and that is examining the power dynamic and the abuse of power that is not terribly well understood, but almost always inherent in the stories, the Me Too stories that we write. And I've got an example for you, the music industry investigation that we did kind of this time last year, January last year, was a tricky story to tell because on the surface, some of the relationships described in that story were consensual. And we were presenting them as a bad thing, you know. And a lot of people really struggled to understand why this was bad, you know. And it's my responsibility. It's my responsibility to my survivors, actually, to the people whose stories I'm telling, to make sure that I have worked hard enough to contextualise, to backload all the context possible into a story like that so that the reader understands why we're telling the story. We're telling the story because there were people who were management for young, vulnerable artists and who overstepped their boundaries. They crossed a line and they put those young artists, even though those relationships were on the surface consensual, they put them in an invidious position. And telling those very delicate threads of how power works and how abusive power can destroy people really interests me mm. hugely. And you won't get that through to everyone, but by golly, I'm going to try. That story was also, just as an aside, was also remarkable for being the one time that a perpetrator rang me and, and said, yes, everything is true and answered all my questions and then answered them again via email and basically copped to what he'd done. And that was that really set me back on my heels because that hardly ever happens. You know, most survivors of harassment abuse, all they want is an apology. And if that apology, if that acknowledgement of the abuse or harassment and apology had been delivered early on, then it never would have got to court. It never would have got to the ERA. It never would have, you know, ended up in a external investigation, you know. But the alleged perpetrators seem to find saying sorry particularly difficult. This is really interesting for me because I read that in relation to your work, the power of the apology. But I find it fascinating that those who have been in positions of power and have abused their power seem to be scared that when the victim is given power, that they're going to act in the same way. But what a lot of victims seem to uh, be looking for is not an abuse of the power that they then have through an act of revenge. It's just a seeking of some form of reconciliation. That comes, I firmly believe, from the fact that Let's. I'm going to use the word women because most survivors are women. That's a fact. And women's stories of abuse and harassment have never been believed. Mm. So when somebody like me comes along and says, yes, I'd like to tell your story, sometimes it's the first time that they've actually been believed. Whether I can get their story over the line or not and meet those standards that I talked about before is a separate thing. But... Women who've been abused or harassed 
I've only ever met one in my four years of daily reporting of these issues who was out for the money, and I'm using air quotes. And when when I realised that I was being used to try and get more money out of a situation, I declined to take the story any further. I haven't come across anyone really who wants revenge. I've come across a lot of women who who say, oh, I feel a bit uncomfortable about this because he's got, it's Christmas and he's got a wife and kids and I don't want to hurt them. And, you know, it's more usually, oh, am I doing the right thing in, once again, air quotes, ruining this person's life than I just want to smash him. You know, I've, I've never come across that. And most of them, hundreds of them, have told me unprompted, I would have been, all I wanted was an apology. Mm. If he'd said sorry early on, I would have been okay with that. Mm. And it's so true across so many justice issues. This is something profound about our humanity. It also makes me very keenly interested in restorative justice. Um, That is the thread that comes that you pull out the end of all of this is we ought to be using restorative justice more more often and more effectively because it works. It really works. And it's terrifying, of course, for both parties and that's why often it doesn't happen because you've got your survivor who doesn't want to sit in the same room as the person that did them so much harm and you've got your alleged perpetrator who thinks that sitting down face to face and maybe having to apologize is something they won't do because that would be admitting that they did the thing Mm. (laughs) but it can be incredible Incredibly effective. You know, it can be healing. Uh, it can allow both parties to go get on with their lives knowing that they have dealt with something really serious and they've come out the other end and they're okay. Hmm. Yeah. This is the last episode of this season for recovering. And what I have been extremely impressed with, and you're closing it off nicely in this regard, is the way that people and a care for people has been at the centre of everything that's been talked about with each journalist, bar none. There's an extreme care for people in play. Uh, And I, I just want to mention that to highlight it to everybody who's listening, that every single journalist we've sat down with loves to tell stories They love to tell stories because they love people, and it's the people that they're bringing to the fore. Which brings me to the last question, because I think it holds in good stead this, the future of New Zealand media, the future of Aotearoa New Zealand media. How do you see it? Oh, I worry. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. Look, I think there are amazing journalists doing fantastic work. And I think the criticism that the media is getting right now, by right now I mean in the last couple of years with the pandemic and the kind of importation of Trumpism and all of that, is warranted in some way, but not the full story. You know, when people say, you know, the media are bought and paid for or all you ever do is clickbait. They are ignoring the work that is put out, conveniently ignoring the work that is put out by some of the people that have been on your podcast, mm. for example. You know, I, if you're going to criticise, if you're going to judge the media, then you have to look at all of it. So I am ever hopeful and I know that 
I look at staff's journey over the past couple of years and how their project to apologise to Māori for the reporting over the past decades. You know, that started with one journalist, Carmen Parahi, phoning a few of us and saying, Eho, will you support me on this? I want to go to the bosses and, and ask to set up this project. And once again, when Sinead, when it got to Sinead, she said, yes, absolutely. And it takes a lot of courage for a media organisation to do something like that. And that, you know, that went from one little letter that we all signed into, you know, thanks to Carmen's amazing drive. I mean, you do not say no to her. (laughs) Trust me. It became a real thing, a big thing, an important thing. And so this is a long way of saying I do have faith in the media. I worry about the parts of the media that are springing up that don't have much in the way of experience or ethical anything. (laughs) I think you could probably think of a few. Accountability. Uh, Yes. Accountability, because you've, you've expressed here, and it's been expressed in other places, the care that is actually taken behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see, that they assume is not there. But the mechanisms in the background for accountability are significant. That's not there for some of these new ones that are popping up. Mm, so I do, I do worry about that. And I very much worry about the waning public trust mm-hmm. in the media because their alternative, if they're not reading in-depth investigation or fact-checked general news, is to get their news from Facebook or Counterspin or, you know... Mm. God help us all, really. It's interesting that you mention the idea of care for people. Mm. So when we launched Me Too, one of the criticisms from a couple of very high-profile women, actually, was that we had said that we were putting a triage system in place so that we would help people access counselling if they needed it or access police help if they needed it or, in some cases, even legal help. So there was support there. And some people kind of finger-waggy, you know, oh, that's not journalism. That's stepping outside your role as a journalist. And I had spoken to quite a few people who'd uh, published these sorts of stories by then. And all of them had some kind of care process for their sources. There wasn't one of them who had not considered how their sources needed to be supported through the process and ongoing. And I remember being asked that in an interview and I said, no, that's not correct. You know, journalists do. It may not have been publicised as we have. It may not have been formalised and stated. But most good journalists absolutely have those processes in place. Mm. Very good. Mm. Well, I'm looking forward to watching the further impact of your work, uh, Ali. Thank you. It's been a pleasure watching it thus far, and I can only see the cultural impact uh, growing. So thank you for taking time. It's been a real pleasure having a chat. It has been my absolute pleasure. Nga mihi nui, Ali, for your fastidious work and for joining Frank for this important conversation. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and thanks to you for listening. That brings us to the end of Season 1 of Recovering. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And feel free to dig back into the excellent conversations from earlier episodes. 
At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media and demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. Love your work.